everyone, and welcome to another episode of Double Shelix and another episode of You Do Belong in Science series. We are so excited that you are listening today. Um, today, we are super excited to welcome our guest, Professor Suhair Sunokrot. She is a professor of pharmaceutics at Al Zaytuna University of Jordan, and we're stoked to have her here to talk with us about her experiences running a research lab and navigating the research culture in Jordan, as well as her numerous experiences working in research labs in other countries, including in the Messersmith Lab, which is my research group here in Berkeley, which is how Suhair and I met, because she was actually a Fulbright Fellow, and her Fulbright Fellowship funded her to work in our lab for a year, and she was an amazing mentor and super productive, and I know you guys are all going to learn something awesome from Suhair's episode. Yes, and... Please stay tuned for a listener question at the end of the episode. And if you also haven't already, please review our podcast on the iTunes Store. We, it's a really great way to participate and helps us so much. Yeah, and we're stoked because, like we mentioned, the Suhair episode is all about like navigating as a researcher away from your home country. And today's listener question, a listener actually wrote in with some exact concerns about their experience researching away from their home and how that's been going. So we are excited to address Suhair's perspective and then give our general take on methods for success and how everyone can work to empower all students and visiting students and people who are away from home to do their best science no matter where they are. Should let's, we... Let's roll this let's, let's do it. Let's listen to our episode with Suhair. Yeah. Welcome to another episode of the You Do Belong in Science series of Double Shelix Podcast. Kayla and I are delighted with our guest today. We are so thrilled to be welcoming Professor Suhair Sunokrot, who's a professor of pharmaceutics at Al Zaytuna University of Jordan. Um, after graduating with her bachelor's from University of Jordan, Suhair got her PhD from the University of Illinois, Chicago, Midwest Connection, um, in biopharmaceutical science. Then she became a professor in Jordan at Al Zaytuna University. And we're super excited to have Suhair on the podcast because she has a lot of perspective about international research, both as a perspective of like leaving your home country to do research somewhere else. She's had experiences not only doing her PhD in Chicago, but also as a visiting scholar or Fulbright fellow in the United States, in Italy and France. So we're just super stoked to have Suhair here. Um, she's not only an excellent scholar and researcher, but we're really excited to share with you guys her awesome perspectives on some of these issues. Welcome, Suhair! Yay! Yay! Thanks for having me. Oh my gosh. We're very happy about that. Um, yeah, so let's just get started. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about your research and uh, what you're working on now. The general theme of my research is developing the different types of nanoparticles for drug delivery. Um, so far, it's been all over the place, but I think I I got a really good perspective after visiting Sally's lab at UC Berkeley. <laughs> like I, I think it um, it definitely helped shape the next let's say five years of what I'll be doing in research, which is basically bio inspired nanoparticles for drug delivery and maybe other applications, but it definitely gave me a more, a narrower scope, so to speak. So <laughs> that's exciting. I love what you said about your research in the beginning of your like research lab career being all over the place. And I think you said that because you meant intellectually, like you're trying a lot of new things, like you're looking for new opportunities in a lot of different spaces within huh. your field. But it's also been all over the place in that in addition to your full-time job as a professor, Literally. which we can get into, yeah full-time, like 100% of the time, 
um, <laughs> as a professor in Jordan, like running your own research group, teaching a lot of students, you've also um, found or created opportunities for yourself, like working in countries outside of your home country. So can you speak a little bit about like how you decided that that was important to you, like how you created those opportunities and like what you took away from those experiences? Sure. Yeah. So uh, I think the main reason was because I didn't get a chance to do an actual postdoc after my PhD. Well, it goes back to like why I ended up in academia in the first place. Like it wasn't my first choice. So I was, I didn't go into my PhD thinking, oh, I'm definitely doing this to become a professor. Because I wanted to work in industry at first. So I didn't have that mindset that, oh, I have to find a postdoc right after my PhD and whatnot. So um, when I was done with my PhD and I, my visa was expiring. So when I couldn't find an industry position, I had to go back home. And I wasn't really, I did email like a few professors at the time when I was like almost giving up on industry like to do an academic postdoc in the US, but I didn't put like my heart into it, I guess. So I had to go back home and then back home, it's a different story. Like it's um, for a PhD, it pays better to be in academia than to, like you were more appreciated for your degree in academia than in industry. So uh, it wasn't my first choice, but then like I didn't get it to do a postdoc. So I had like limited experience with independent research. So that was the driving force for me looking for international opportunities because in Jordan and many Arab countries, like a postdoc position doesn't exist. There's no such thing as a postdoc. Um, so you're either like a PhD student or a professor. Um, so I had to look for those opportunities abroad. Yeah, I think we're constantly getting inundated with how grim the academic outlook is. And so it's very bewildering to hear you say that you that academia was your second choice and you landed there after. <laughs> like, that's just really crazy to me right now. <laughs> also, no, postdoc, that's also really... Like, the concept is bewildering. <laughs> no, but, I mean, it's nice that you save some time. Like, you didn't, you don't have to. But then, like, when you're, because uh, when you're in academia, you have to start doing your own independent research. And it has to be different from what your PhD advisor does, mm -hmm. obviously. But then you still want to use some of those skills. But having a postdoc experience definitely helps you maybe gain better sets of skills or a better idea for or a different direction for your research. So it definitely, like in retrospect, I wish I did pursue a postdoc more seriously. But then again, like I did get other opportunities my year at UC Berkeley because it wasn't that that long after my PhD. It felt like a postdoc, more or less. So, so when you had your Fulbright Fellowship, where what stage were you in the process of building your lab? Because you have to apply a year in advance. So when I was applying, when I was submitting the application, um, I had just submitted my first proposal to the university, and I was so I was just so frustrated with because it took so long for the funding to come through because of bureaucracy stuff. We relate. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So, I mean, because so the thing is, like, when you submit a proposal, it's not about 
is it going to get accepted or not? It's definitely going to get accepted. It's just a question of how much they're going to give you and when. So um, I knew I was going to get something at some point, but it was so frustrating not knowing like when exactly and how much I was going to be. So that so I was applying for the Fulbright Fellowship. I was applying for a similar type of fellowship for Europe um, around that time. So I was just starting up. And I was just so frustrated and the Fulbright thing started a year later. And by then I had my first graduate student graduate and I was just getting started setting up the lab. It's not like really my lab. It's like a communal space. I was just starting like my own theme, so to speak. So you've spoken a little bit about how you kind of arrived at this position as a professor in Jordan a little bit by happenstance and like right place. And obviously like you're had to be very accomplished and successful in order to get a professor. Don't sell yourself short. Like you are a star, but <laughs> so this, this podcast series is about finding belonging in science. And it seems like when you first arrived at that kind of professor job, it might be easy to feel like, Oh, I didn't even do a postdoc. And like, now I'm a professor and like, that's a really big deal. And like, blah, what do I do? So did you feel like you belonged when you first arrived as a professor in your current university and lab? And then like, how have you transitioned to feel even more confident and your research is like very successful right now. So how has that transition from like finding belonging in that kind of role? Just to be clear, I still don't feel that I completely belong in science. <laughs> there are moments where you, I mean, I'm sure you can relate where you feel like you completely don't belong or you really belong. <laughs> but I mean, it, it comes in. <laughs> But yeah, I think what helped is that um, there were people that were worse off than me. Okay. So that helped me build my confidence. For example, a lot of my colleagues who had done their PhD in the UK, where they, they immediately jump into research, they don't take any classes and it takes them like three years. Mm. Most of them, their professors don't really care about how many publications you get. And um, because they only have like three years to finish their uh, thesis, they usually they don't work on that many projects other than their own. So they don't have that much experience or mentoring junior students or like coming up with different ideas for different projects. I was luckier in that regard that my I had a crazy advisor that <laughs> I was there for five years and he had me work on different projects other than my own thesis project and he cared a lot about publishing so I ended up even though it was very stressful um, but I ended up with like more publications than some of the people who were already professors in Jordan so and I also had a lot of mentoring experience um, supervising like junior students and kind of coming up with small ideas, but like my own small ideas. So I, even though I like, I didn't do a postdoc, but it still felt like I was doing better than my peers in at the same university. Nice. So sort of a reality check on imposter syndrome. Like, oh, okay, you know what? I'm not totally disqualified to be here right now. <laughs> and speaking of imposter syndrome, I was obviously like reading about you before this and. I didn't want to tell the listeners how many papers you got from your PhD because then they would all feel imposter syndrome. <laughs> but listeners, you can Google it. Um, so I told some of our lab mates 
that I was talking with you and they were super excited slash jealous because we all miss you. Shuhari, when she was in our lab, was not only like a wonderful mentor, a wonderful friend, but she also like did an entire paper in nine months by herself. So that's no big deal. So they were all, the lab mates were wondering, and me and Kayla, as a new professor, how do you recruit students into your group? Because, you know, you kind of have to, like, they have to trust you, but, like, how do you build that trust and, like, show the students that your lab is going to be successful? And then, in your mind, like, what are the keys to success in a laboratory where you have only master's students? Yeah. I mean, um, it's kind of different because uh, pharmacy is, like, a five-year bachelor program. Um, I've had, like, some undergrads approach me, like, wanting to do research, but... Um, so far, like none of them have been really serious about it. But um, for master students, I think the real challenge as a supervisor, as an advisor, is to find a project that can be done in a reasonable time frame and that is novel enough that it's not a total waste of time for you or the student, that you can get a paper or at least be a foundation for a paper eventually. I think that's... That's why most uh, professors here in Jordan take master's, graduate students in general, like, to get publications out of them. <laughs> I know I it's a universal truth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's it's especially true here because, like I said, like we don't have a postdoc position, so you can't really set up a lab with like a postdoc and a lab tech and research specialist and whatnot. So most of the work is being done by graduate students. And the real challenge when you only have master's students is that they have to be done in two semesters. So like a fall and a spring semester, or if you're lucky, like a spring, because summer doesn't count, and then the next fall. So at most, you would have like less than a year mm-hmm. of people doing research. So you have to think of a project that is guaranteed to give some kind of positive result, I guess, mm-hmm. within this time frame. So it has to be something realistic. You can't you can't give them like really high risk projects because you have to write a proposal when they start. Like they have to submit a proposal to the graduate college when they first start doing the research. So it has to be something like you can't change the title or the the topic of your proposal. So I think that's the major challenge: finding something reasonably novel for a master student. And that can be both beneficial to you and the student and something that can be done within this uh, short time frame about recruiting. My first student was just assigned to me. I was lucky with my first student that, mm-hmm. I don't know, word gets around <laughs> by word of mouth. And then people will just come up to me and like, oh, we would like to join your lab for a master thesis. So far, I've been lucky. People have been coming up to me. Like, I didn't have to go after students to like recruit them. They would just show up. because your successes speak for themselves um going back to your point about like how you feel you have to balance realistic expectations of the master students and also the time constraints of their project how do you balance those with the need to be innovative and define for yourself a space within science i was just saying are you the one that's doing the high risk experiments or yeah I would still do those on the side. My main research area would take like much longer than like, a year. Like I would have like, a long-term plan for the work I'm doing. Um, so I would preferably like give them something that's already been tried and true in some aspect, but like it ha- still has to be novel. Like, I wouldn't tell them to like synthesize a new polymer and use it to like encapsulate a drug or something. We try to find 
something that's already established with a new combination of polymers or polymer and drug or a new application for an old polymer. Like it's still novel, but like not completely high risk. Cool. So can you speak a little bit about like the general climate of academia in Jordan? Like what do you wish that your colleagues in Berkeley or elsewhere knew about your experiences, um, the funding situation? You spoke a little bit about the situation with the students and postdocs, but um, what do you wish that your colleagues knew about what it's like for you to be an academic in Jordan? In addition to like the heavy teaching load, we I think the major challenge is finding uh, funding. Because if you rely on not just internal funding, but countrywide, if you have the NIH and NSF, for example, and you can get like grants of millions of dollars, but the most we can ever get, maybe a few hundred thousand dollars. And that's like, if they give it to you once, like that's it. And uh, the thing that's more frustrating is that it doesn't always have to do with funding gets rejected or downsized. Like it's not because of um, your science. It's usually because you don't know the right people in the right places or like you're not that well established in your career. So uh, there's there's a lot of bias against private versus public sectors. I work in a private sector. It's a private university. Um, so if you apply to public funds, they'd be like, oh, you guys have a lot more money. You don't need this. You shouldn't be asking for uh, grants to get equipment like your university should get you the, that equipment but like but then at the same time the university is like yeah we're gonna cut down on research funding for you <laughs> so yeah you can't get anywhere but back to your question what I wish like other people knew um, or understood about the research climate here is that that's the major challenge the lack of sufficient funding and the lack of sufficient infrastructure for research and also uh, the right mindset, finding like the right people to collaborate with and like locally. Because um, you can't always like travel to find collaborators. If you want to be able to establish something in your home country. And I think that's what I'm finding more uh, most challenging nowadays, like finding the right collaborators with the right sets of skills, the right people to do the work that I want to do, and also funding, obviously. You alluded to a heavy teaching load. What does that look like for you? Um, it's especially tough at first when you, like, you're just starting to teach, so you have to prepare all the, like, the lecture materials from scratch. Um, but then after a while, you just edit whatever you have to teach every semester. So now it's not as bad as when I first started. But every once in a while that we would change like the syllabus and um, or add in like a new course to the, the study plan for the students. So you'll have to teach something new that no one has taught before. So you have to start preparing from scratch. But um, it's not as challenging as when you start because like you don't have a lot of like hands like, working in the lab. So I most of the time, like I still do a lot of the experiments myself. So for that, like, you need to find time to do that. And you can't do that when you have to teach, like, a class and then have an hour break for office hours where you have to officially, like, sit in your office and wait for students who never show up. <laughs> I feel like that's a universal struggle. Yes. Yeah. 
and then go to another class. You have short breaks between classes. So you have to be very well organized, have really good time management skills to be able to do both research and teach at the same time. Yeah. How Well, how many classes do you teach? And generally, what is your time breakdown between these different activities? Generally, I teach about like 12 hours per week. Like, that's a lot. That's just a lecture time? Yeah, that's just a lecture time. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so if you teach, like, 12 hours, you have to uh, dedicate half of those hours, like, six hours for office hours. Ends up being, like, 18 hours just for teaching. That's not talking about, like, the time you spend preparing for your lectures or grading exams, or writing exams, grading assignments. Writing proposals. Yeah, so I'd say like it takes like at least half of your time. You're a very busy person. Get it, girl? Yes. And apparently very well organized to plan all of these things. (laughs) So we're going to be releasing this episode in April as part of our You Do Belong in Science series, as we mentioned. But also, we're very excited to be talking with you about your experience working internationally because today's International Women's Day. Yay. When we're recording this. I know. Before we talk about your roles like researching internationally and um, your experiences in the U.S. and Italy and France, what would you say to like a young woman in Jordan who's thinking that she also wants to be a professor or in a pharmaceutical department such as yourself? Um, yeah, I would say just grab any opportunity that you find. Um, just go to like if you're really interested in doing research just in like some person's research just go to them and talk to them about it and just be persistent and don't give up don't listen to people telling you like you don't belong there or why would you ever want to do that and yeah just be persistent oh i love it awesome i spoke a little bit about how you sort of created these opportunities for yourself researching in other countries and you spoke a little bit about why you prioritized that in your career but can you talk about like during your time as someone who was a researcher not in your home country, like what do you wish your colleagues knew about your experiences? Because I feel like in science, you know, especially um, at top universities anywhere in the world, a lot of people there are coming to that university from a- another country. And that has like, in addition to the science, which is obviously hard and stressful, that has like this whole other set of challenges. So can you speak to some of the challenges that you face in that regard or like what you wish the people who are lucky enough to be researching in our own country, um, what you wish like we knew about your experiences? The first two experiences, like international experiences I had were very short, like they only lasted a month in both cases, like in Italy and in France. So, but um, what my international colleagues, what I would like them to know is that um, it's not very easy for us to um, do research, like obviously why, that's why we're here or like we're in your country because we uh, can't find similar opportunities at home. And at the same time, like it's not as bad as you think. Right. You know, you would think like, oh, Jordan, they cannot get any work done in terms of research, scientific achievements. But that's not entirely true. There is good science being done here. It's just being masked by everything else. <laughs> But sure, it's hard for us to find the funding and the right collaborators and everything. But some people do get some work done. 
And I'm hoping to be one of those people. Oh, you already are. Um, <laughs> went to all of these different places. Was there anything that really surprised you? If I had never done my PhD like outside of Jordan, maybe I would have been surprised by some things. But um, because I didn't, like I already knew what to expect, kind of. But then, like the differences would be more like social. I had spent so much time in the U.S. I went to France the first summer after graduating, so it was still pretty fresh. My uh, experience from uh, grad school. It was interesting to see socially they were different, obviously, from Americans or people in the U.S. And also like their outlook at life and research and everything. They were more laid back. They had to have their coffee break or tea, like tea time at four o'clock. Like we just drop everything and just go for tea or coffee or something. And they take a whole month off in August. The university just shuts down. No grad students, no postdocs, no professors, nobody. They just they have to take that one month off. France, in particular, is notorious for like taking too much vacation time. <laughs> but like, in general, I think I that's the impression I got. Like in Europe, in general, like it's not unusual to have like a whole month off in the summer. Like I can't even imagine like taking a weekend off. I, th- I thought that was interesting. Hmm, that is interesting. Yeah. Suhair, can you tell us what are some of your career goals for the short term and long term, and mm. also life goals? Yes. That's deep. (laughs) We just jumped from, you know. (laughs) Well, um, short term, um, obviously, I want to get tenure. I would vote for you. (laughs) I don't know if that's how it works, but. (laughs) To get tenure here in Jordan, it only has to do with how many publications you get. And you you don't even have to get that many publications, how much funding you got over the years, but like. The main criteria is how many publications and like in the span of five to six years, you can easily get like four to five papers, two of which are first author papers. <laughs> it's ridiculous how easy it is. But um, for me, like that's my short term goal. And obviously to become more internationally known in my field, I guess, like to be somebody <laughs> and life goals. <sighs> I mean, I don't want my whole life to be about academia. I want to have like something else. Right now, it seems like work is everything like I live for at times. Obviously, you want to be able to do what you love, but you want to have like something else in your life going for you. You know, so like when you retire, like you have something like a fallback position. (laughs) I love it. Very strategic. <laughs> like, you know, like your life, your whole life doesn't have to be about work all the time. I want to get to a point where work is just something I have to do to pay the bills. Like what I really want to do is this, but I still don't know what that is. So. <laughs> you have time to think about it. Yeah, there's, you're young. You'll figure it out. <laughs> um, since this is the You Do Belong in Science series, were there any specific times where there was like an acute incident where... You just really felt like someone said something or something happened and you were just like, shit, man, I do not. Like, what am I doing here? And how do you transition away from those feelings towards feeling like you don't belong only sometimes? <laughs> um, there was this one time where like my first year of grad school, because it was like the first time a long time that I was away from my family in, in a different country. And so it was hard on like different 
aspect. Grad school was nothing like I had pictured um, before. <laughs> so it was a lot of like adjusting. And then like your first year you do like kind of what you do at Uber. Like you have to do rotations in different people's labs and then decide on a lab to join. And the lab that I originally wanted to join at the end of that rotation the advisor said something that made me feel like I don't really belong there. It was something along the line, like he didn't want me to join his lab. And one of the reasons he said was like, I was, he felt like I was only book smart, that I wasn't very passionate about research. What? Like, yeah. So <laughs> I didn't join his lab. Like, and in retrospect, glad I didn't. Like, yeah. I didn't really. Yeah, I shouldn't even have considered his lab. That was one of those moments. Yeah, that's not a great way to start a five or six year yeah. relationship. <laughs> relationship. Yeah. yeah, but obviously you're smart in so many different ways, and one of them is as a kick-ass researcher who's doing wonderful work. So <laughs> yeah. he, I don't know what his career's like right now, but I'm sure yours is accelerating pace. Our time is coming to an end soon, but before we get to shameless plug time. Is there anything you don't want to leave without talking about or like any topic or like? Um, I think one of uh, the major challenges uh, that I had to deal with was submitting uh, a research paper as with you at, as the corresponding author. First of all, like if they see that you're not from an English speaking country, they immediately just assume that your English is going to be bad and you have to proofread your manuscript. So that's like, a really uh, annoying comment to get when you've been schooled your whole life in English and spent five or six years in an English-speaking country. And um, your English-speaking colleagues can attest to your English-speaking and writing abilities. And yet, like, you get that comment from an editor who just because I've seen worse papers, I just wonder, like, how those got through. And yet we get those kind of comments from an editor and also making assumptions. I feel like when I was in grad school and I was submitting papers, I, I was like my advisor would submit the papers. But then when we would get comments back, they would usually be minor um, things that you had to do or to and just revise the paper and that's it. But then the comments that I see, like when I submit my own papers or one of my colleagues would get 30 comments on a manuscript. And then she would address them all, and most of them would require additional work. And then she would address them, address like all of those thirty comments, and the paper would still get rejected. And I think maybe it's a subconscious bias. I don't know what we would call it. But just because we're from a developing country, reviewers and editors they just immediately assume that the work is bad and. Either it gets rejected right away or they, it just gets scrutinized more than it would if you were in a more developed country. It's really frustrating to be a corresponding author and having to um, read all those comments that are sometimes intentionally mean. Yeah. The peer review process. Yeah, I think peer review, people hide behind the blindedness of it. And to some degree, like, I think blindedness where you don't know who's reviewing you can be okay. If I had to review a paper as a junior faculty from the most senior person in my field and it was a bad paper, like, I wouldn't want them to know that those comments came from me. But at the same time, like, it gives people the license to be the worst. Yeah. Oh, 
All right, I think, you know, what it's time for, Kayla? Shameless plug time. Shameless plug time. Yep. Suhair, please, you've already spoken a little bit about your research, and it's awesome, and it's importance, uh, but please, like, plug your research, or if there's anything you're passionate about, um, any links you want to share in the show notes. We can obviously link to your website, which looks really good. If you want to collaborate in anything related to polymers for drug delivery or nanoparticles for drug delivery or targeted anti-cancer drug delivery, natural products, drug delivery, anything. <laughs> All right. I'm picking up a drug delivery thing. Um, yeah, I'm <laughs> sensing. If you want to invite me for a sabbatical or something. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Okay, cool. Yeah. I love it. Also, if you're reviewing Suhair's paper or any paper yes. from a lab <laughs> in a under-resourced country, just, like, have some compassion and, like, don't be the worst. <laughs> yes. Put yourself in our shoes. Yeah. Just be fair. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Suhair, thank you so much for joining us today. Yes. This was awesome. You do belong in science. Thank you. Yes. This was so good. It's All right, listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Do Belong in Science from Double Shelix as much as we did. Um, stay tuned for our next episode, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter and view us on the iTunes Store. Yes. Well, we hope you enjoyed listening to our awesome interview with Suhair. That was fantastic. Suhair is amazing. That was, yeah. Oh, wow. Now we're going to talk about a listener story. And conveniently, as Sally mentioned at the beginning of this episode, it is about doing research abroad. And so, Sally, do you want to share, summarize the listener story? Yeah. So the listener wrote in and they said, Hi, Sally and Kayla. I've really been enjoying your podcast. I was hoping you guys could discuss how to handle being a visiting scientist abroad or how to handle feeling unwelcome in a lab. I'm an American on a research fellowship in Europe, and I feel very unwelcome in my lab and in this country in general. I feel like it's something that most don't consider when they accept research fellowships. Any perspectives? Thanks so much. Wow. Listener, I'm sorry that you're in this situation, but I know that you can make the best of it because you're not the first one that this has happened to. That's right. Definitely not the first. In the places that I've worked, there's a bunch of people who come from other countries to work here or they were in other countries in the past. And I think it's something that a lot of people struggle with. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that it's something that people are very comfortable talking about. Yeah, it's true. Because it's one thing to say like, oh, yeah, this research is hard, but it's another thing to be like, oh, yeah, like, my entire existence in this entire country and everyone here and some of your customs and cultures, like, make me feel uncomfortable and I have no idea what I'm doing and it's really stressful. Like, no one says that ever. Right. <laughs> but we're your place to talk about how this is stressful. Yes. Yeah. And definitely, as Sally said, it's not... A lot of people that I know I have talked to have, have had a similar experience where they go to research lab that's in another country and... Like you said, you have all of these different cultural changes on top of trying to do a new research project, on top of being with a new group of people, which is already difficult. Like, yeah, it's it always takes some time to just get to know people, and especially when you're battling through all of these other changes, it's it's just a lot. And, and then feeling unwelcome because of that is even worse. <laughs> So I asked some of my friends who had who are in or have been in similar situations, and one of the things that they mentioned is that it does get better over time. Mm. But I want to highlight something else that the listeners alluded to in this letter, which was that feeling unwelcome in a lab. Mm. And I feel like, you know, you can have cultural differences or, you know, different perspectives or backgrounds, but 
feeling unwelcome in a lab is a very serious problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not your fault. Yeah. Um, so to address that, I would say one thing is that often labs can get um, stuck into like a group think mentality. Take some time to sort of figure out how you can break up the group think mentality. So, I mean, what does everyone love talking about most is their own research. So in the past, (laughs) I mean, it's true. Yeah. In the past, while being in new research situations, I've had a lot of success being like going up to a person one-on-one and saying, hey, Kayla, like, I would love to learn more about the new device that you've made for glioblastoma. Like, can I take you to coffee and you can tell me all about it. And then I'll spend 30 minutes telling you about it. 30 minutes if I'm lucky. You'll be more friends. <laughs> yeah. 95 if I'm not. No. Yeah, but right. anyway, <laughs> like, if you feel like there's unhealthy group dynamics, an easy first step can be to just invite people and attempt to interact with them one-on-one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Another way with group dynamics, if you feel like this is the advice that they give to teens with or to, like, tweens with no friends. Um, no, like seriously, it's, when you're it's being good advice. and they say like, you know, if there's a group of girls that always hangs out, just like try to sit at their lunch table. And even if they ignore you most of the time, like they'll eventually you'll get folded into the fold. Mm-hmm. So like keep making an effort and keep trying to so like showing up, at showing things. up at things, jumping into conversations, right? Unless it's like really weird, but like you know, it's, it's always going to seem weirder in your mind than it actually is. That is very true. So, and when you're the person that's already in the group, you mm. you one take a moment to reach out, but two recognize that like as the person who's joining, you feel like everything you're doing is awkward and like everyone is thinking about it. But if you're the person that's already part of the group or in the group involved, you forget that feeling and you you don't recognize that, you know, the newcomer is experiencing that. You're just like, oh, they're just being quiet, whatever. Right, exactly. On to my next experiment, whatever. Right. (laughs) And I think, yes, so call out to all listeners, regardless of whether or not the country that you're currently in is the one where you were raised. Mm -hmm. Open your eyes and look at your colleagues around you and think about their journey to where they are. And for a lot of people, that has been very tumultuous. Mm -hmm. And so make the effort, like I think all of our listeners should make it a goal for this week to reach out to someone from their lab that either they personally aren't that close to or that they suspect might have trouble adjusting to the group. Mm -hmm. Just ask them to go to coffee or whatever the thing is. Ask them to go with you and get to know someone in your research group or in your collaborator's research group that you know is on the fringes. Because you guys... Even in my own groups in the lab or in friends, friend circles or whatever, like, you know who's on the periphery. Help bring them into the fold. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And besides being a decent human being, right, it's, it's good for the work, right? Like, you get a chance to, to learn new perspectives, and so does the other person, and so why, right. why wouldn't you want to? Right. And, like, even in my own group meeting, there's been so many times where I watch someone's presentation, I'm like, oh, shit, like... I can learn so much from this person about their research. Like, how come I haven't sat down with them and just talked to them about what they do? And how come I just waited until their group meeting to, like, learn about their project? Mm -hmm. Especially if they're new to the lab or they have some sort of fellowship that funds an independent project. Like, what am I doing? Yeah, so reach out to people in your group. So the last thing I will say on this is feeling unwelcome in any kind of workplace is really shitty. And I'm really sorry that it's happening to you. Mm -hmm. But in a lab setting in particular, so much of your success depends on being able to harness the learned experience and the resources from those around you. Mm -hmm. So if you feel like your feelings of unwelcome, 
are hindering your ability to get your work done, which definitely happens, mm-hmm. whether it's because the other people are mean, whether it's because you're shy about a language barrier or whatever the situation might be. If it's hindering your ability to get work done, this is a serious problem and you should consider addressing it with, if not your PI or supervisor, then someone in the group who you feel you can relate to, but that also possesses a lot of social capital in the lab and just say like, hey, I'm having trouble fitting in or like, hey, I'm having trouble getting the resources I need to be successful in this work because everyone wants you to be successful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so for that, I would say in the past when I felt like it's been hard for me to get help from someone the best way that I found is to shoot them a quick email or in person and be like, Hey, Kayla, I want, I would love your input on this. Like what's the best way to make that happen? Um, email in person, stopping by your desk, making a meeting because different cultures and more so even just different individuals have preferred ways of communicating about their work. So maybe if you had been going up to the person and being like asking every other day if they could help you and they always seem to blow you off, maybe they don't, maybe they just don't like being asked in person. So give them an opportunity to tell you what the best way is for them to help you. Yeah. In terms of the boring stuff like email versus person versus phone call versus scheduled versus drop in. Yeah, exactly. So true. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much for sending this listener yes. question. Thank you very much. It's definitely. Uh, more common problem than we talk about for sure yeah especially because we're like both Americans in in the U.S. (laughs) yeah Yeah. but (laughs) I know that this happens and I would encourage all of our listeners to take some time this week to reach out to someone from your group who is from another country or who is somehow not in the core yes the yes the inner circle so to speak Uh, Awesome. Listeners, we want to hear your story. Yeah, you can submit your stories to our email, doubleshelikespodcast at gmail.com. Or our phone number, in the U- it's U.S.-based, so one first, 415-895-0850. Um, you can call the voicemail, and then we'll put your voice on the podcast. And I think this is a specially, I think this is a perfect time to announce that our next episode is going to be this massive you do belong in science extravaganza yes <laughs> featuring what Kayla and me have learned from doing this series which is a lot you guys featuring a ton of listener stories mm-hmm. because some of the listeners had stories that like we need to spend more than five minutes talking about because yeah. they address really serious topics including um representation and inclusivity of of lgbtqia people in science and in your lab and in your community i think that's a super important topic that we need to like address very thoroughly we'll have resources it'll be amazing um we also want to talk about another listener question relating to like health in graduate school and what to happen like when chronic illness or acute illness and injury and how that impacts a graduate student's ability to be successful again this is another topic where there's like issues that um they take more time to address yeah so we're excited to address those and we're happy that listeners have submitted such questions mm-hmm. um what else? Oh, and um, obviously, You Do Belong in Science is never over, and Double Shelix will continue. Yeah, we, we are planning to, uh, you know, have some episodes in the future that are on, on the same theme. So, But also, we'll have our regular episodes. Yeah, so you can just listen to us go back and forth about stuff. Which is the same as our You Do Belong in Science episodes, but there's not a poster already made about it. That is true. Yeah, it's going to be, be great. Yeah, you should listen. And with that... We want to thank everybody that has been involved in the production of these podcasts. So, um, first of all, Penn Bioengineering for their support 
in the production of these podcasts and the Berkeley Student Tech Fund for funding this You Do Belong in Science special series, as well as all of our materials, stickers, logo, information, all that great stuff that hopefully you're all enjoying by now. Speaking of our logo and stickers, they were designed by the amazing Gustavo Villarreal at Wiki Rascals on Twitter. Our pictures were from Kaz Lewis at Kaz Lewis on Instagram. You can get the stickers. So the Double Shelix stickers and the You Do Belong in Science stickers are only going to be free for a limited time at doubleshelix.com slash stickers. Then you can still get them, but you'll have to pay us money. TBA, hell. But yeah. anyway. Um, <laughs> but while we've, while we've got them... This is your ter- chance. Chance, so. yeah. It's you do belong in science, and everyone can have the sticker for free. And, our, and our logo sticker. Oh, my God. Our logo is amazing. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. I say that every episode. It's getting to be a little much. The eyelash is really cool. I just Yeah, and then hair. also the thing, like the DNA base pairs, it kind of looks like when you have a sound wave, and there's, like, different volumes. That is Which true. I didn't realize until, like, two weeks ago. That's wow. how good our logo is. Wow. There's um, so much hidden meanings. <laughs> yeah. It's really good. Okay. Yeah. Please review this podcast Please. on the iTunes store. We know you're listening. We because, have so many listeners. Yeah, and we know you're listening to this part because you're in lab and you're in the tissue culture and you can't take your gloves off. <laughs> we know the life. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so it's You Do Belong in Science. This is our last official episode, but we're having our You Do Belong in Science wrap-up slash bonus science extravaganza yes. coming out next Tuesday. Um, you guys, it's... It's going to be great. Thanks, with, listeners. With that, You Do Belong in Science. You Do Belong in Science. Mm-hmm.